Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. The big sound from underground, another pirate no station. No change without struggle. No one in power ain't giving up nothing. No change without struggle. No one in power. W-O-R-T, 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Dinur. This is a pre-recorded show, so you cannot join us, but uh, please stay. I think it'll be a very fine, shall we say, um, show. My guest is Lori Frederick. She's the senior food and dining writer for OnMilwaukee.com. She's also the author of Milwaukee Food, A History of Cream City Cuisine, and the co-host of Food Crush, a podcast for people to eat. And we are here to talk about her new book, Wisconsin Field to Fork, Farm Fresh Recipes from the Dairy State. Hello, Lori. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning, Esty. Thank you so much. And um, this, of course, is the season of um, eating, <laughs> both because <laughs> there's there's a lot of holidays and because it's winter in Wisconsin, and um, we want to fill our bellies, I think. So um, good to talk with you today. Um, Wisconsin Field to Fork, Farm Fresh Recipes from the Dairy State. Um, what What is the journey that brought you to write this book? So it's a combination. It really is a combination of many things and probably a culmination of um, the things I've learned in my career. I have always had an appreciation for food um, growing up. I had a exposure, let's say, to to local food in the sense that my parents always gardened. Um, we always took trips to the Northwoods in Wisconsin to pick wild blueberries. Um, and, and then there were things like, at the time, farmers markets weren't at least on my radar, but there were there were the food stands on the side of the road where where farmers would sell corn or apples you know, in season. Um, and as I, as my career progressed and I began writing about food and working with chefs, um, what I found is that they had a great appreciation for local food. Um, I watched as, um, I've been privileged to watch as restaurants have increased the amount of work that they do with local farms. Um, and when the publisher approached me to, to put out a cookbook, their request was really a cookbook that focused on Wisconsin. Um, they wanted a cookbook that contained, um, recipes from Wisconsin chefs. And, um, that was about, that was about the extent 
and they came to me and said, do you have ideas for that? You know, we can, we are, we're open to anything. Do you have ideas for this? And I said, you know, one of the things that I've been watching pretty closely is the changes that have happened in terms of the dining landscape and how chefs are able to work with those local farms. And I said, I don't think that's something that your average consumer has an inside peek at. You know, I mean, I've, I've been sitting in a dining room when the farmers come, for instance, to, do, to make their deliveries um, and, you know, the conversations that they have with chefs. And um, I've been increasingly impressed just by the fact that those are actual relationships that the chefs have with these farmers. And early on in my in my career, those relationships were comprised of like agreements, maybe to grow certain crops, you know, during the year. Um, and that turned out to not be the best, the best possible way, you know, to, to sit down and go through the seed catalogs and say, oh, as a chef, I would like this, this, and this, you know, would you grow these for me? Um, it sounds at its foundation, like a really, really good idea and a great partnership. Um, but what happened is that sometimes farms would find that those things didn't grow well on their land or in their microclimate. Um, sometimes they would run into issues where it was simply a poor season, at which point, you know, the chefs would lose out on that crop um, and the farmers would lose out on, you know, being productive with that portion of their land. In other cases, chefs might leave, you know, they may have been working for a, rest, a specific restaurant where they would need something and maybe even something obscure like cardoons. And um, the farmers would grow them for them. And then they would find themselves, the chefs would have changed jobs and gone to another restaurant where there was no longer a need for that. So, so kind of the shifting, at which point, you know, the, the farmer loses out again and the, you know, um, so those very specific relationships didn't work quite as well. Um, and so I've watched as farmers and chefs have kind of evolved um, to models where the farmers are really allowed to grow what they grow best on their land, in their climate. And the chefs work with them and are actually being more creative using those products rather than maybe things on their wish list, if that makes, if that makes sense. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I wasn't aware that um, the relationships have, have changed that way. Um, I guess I thought that uh, farmers are still growing what the chefs want. And so it, it's interesting um, that I, I suppose what it demands of chefs is to be more creative to not um, think a year in advance of what it is they're going to cook next year, but to take what there is and uh, use it. And so if you want to answer that, but first tell us, what is a cardoon? <laughs> <laughs> what is a cardoon? <laughs> a cardoon is a vegetable that you don't, you don't see very often. Looks a little like a, um, maybe like a celery stalk. Um, and I mean, chefs use them in all different ways, but like, for instance, I've never seen one at a farmer's market, um, and have only eaten it, you know, in dishes like Sue's, um, and things, um, in restaurants. So I, I'm not a cardoon expert, but I know that, that they're, they're one of those vegetables that comes up every now and again. Um, and, um, 
Is it? I think it's from the Anis um, family. Is that, do you know? I think so, because I think it's related to fennel, which is why it yeah, has that that's what I'm thinking. Celery. Yes. Yeah, so. I, I know I knew what it was at some point, but yeah. 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 Anyway. And it, <laughs> and it would probably be mistaken of me to say that, that farmers and chefs never work together, you know, that farmers don't grow things for chefs. Um, because I think to, to some extent they do. Um, but I think it's not so much a contract to grow specific things as it is a contract with a farmer that grows beautiful things um, that the farmers or that the chefs can, can use in season. If that if that makes sense, there's there's less of a whole being dedicated to a to a restaurant. Yeah, well, I also think that um, so as you as you talk about in the book, at least in some of the farms, uh, people rotate their crops all the time, which is oh every year, not all the time. Um, which is the right way to do farming uh, and keep the soil in good shape. Uh, we know that uh, these commercial um, farms are destroying the land with uh, the pesticides and with growing the same thing um, every year, right? And so yeah. if... Um, If you grow carrots one year, you might want to grow some overground crop the next year. And I imagine people still um, have some kind of specialty, right? Like I know in the, um, for example, in the co-op here, we get TP carrots and we get them every year. But I imagine they grow them in different areas. What, what do you know about that? Yeah, well... And I think farmers know their land best, you know, and they know the crops that grow in the soil, in the particular soil that they have and in the climate that they have. And so I think, I think they're able to be creative and have consistent crops, even if things have to have to be shuffled, you know, every year. And I think, I think the ones who have been doing it for a very long time also, you know, they know how long they have to grow a certain crop, you know, in that ground without depleting the soil. Um, in some cases, I think they're able to harvest certain crops early, um, plant something that renews the soil, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Like certain, cover crops maybe. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, like a cover crop um, to renew that soil and then potentially use it again, potentially earlier. Um, I didn't get into specifics, you know, kind of how folks rotate their crops, but I do know that, that all of those practices that... Um, that really emphasize being a good steward of the soil are are really at the at the at the heart of what farmers do these days um it's not it's not just about well i'm an organic farmer and i don't use chemicals um the emphasis is so much on stewarding that soil and improving its nutrients um yeah. and I, i think that that is a really good kind of turn i would say um Yeah. Well, uh, Jade found for us that Cardoon is the same species as the globe artichoke. It's a thistle. And I still think it's from the Anis um, family, but um, I may be wrong on that. Uh, back Maybe to... it's a distant cousin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah. I mean, if, if we... 
if this wasn't a uh, pre-recorded show, we could ask some chef to call us and, and tell us. <laughs> but, uh, and what do they do with that? But um, maybe, maybe they will... They, maybe they will call anyway, and uh, I can mention it <laughs> at a later show. So um, when you went to do, to uh, write the book, to create the book, how did you choose the farmers and the chefs and the order in which they are presented? Okay. I had, when you, when you do something like this, you have a lot of decisions, and they always impact how, kind of how, how the book works. How the book is formulated and in this particular case I went back and forth for a bit trying to decide if I should go to farms first or if I should begin with the restaurants um, and I fairly quickly decided that I should start with the chefs um, because this was a cookbook you know at its at it in its soul this is a cookbook Um, and I wanted them to be able to choose farms that they felt a kinship with, that they would, that they knew they had a strong relationship with ingredients that meant something to them. Um, and that's because these things mean things to chefs. And I think the chefs don't want to be assigned <laughs> to a farm necessarily. Um, so letting them choose the recipes that were going into the book, Um, was important to me and from the, so from there got the recipe from the chef and the goal was to link it to a farm through at least one ingredient so they passed on the recipe and contact information for the farm that they worked with um, we did a little bit of management in there um, there is some crossover in terms of chefs that numbers multiple chefs using the same farm Um, but you know, if there were, if there were too many people who chose the same, <laughs> the same farm, you know, it's like, let's roll again, you know, can we, can we, can we add another farm, I guess, to this list, um, that you, you know, that you have a particular relationship with, but it really, it's, it started with the chefs. Um, and then I moved on, um, and had so many really great rewarding conversations, um, with the farmers that they introduced me to. Yeah, okay, that's interesting um, that you started with the chefs, and um, you have several from Madison. Um, I, if you want to mention them, but I, I just want to tell you that as I was driving to the station this morning, um, I was thinking about how when I arrived in Madison, and it's a long time ago, it was in uh, 1984, Um, there were a few Chinese restaurants. There was one Middle Eastern restaurant, and I think that's what there was. <laughs> no, there was uh, Himal Chuli, actually, I think, was already there or started very soon thereafter. But, but that's it. And now we have so many amazing restaurants and, and so many amazing um, international restaurants. Um, restaurants with sh often chefs from you know these countries um, is that what you're seeing also in Milwaukee and throughout Wisconsin is is that um, really a trend kind of general generally speaking or, or is it unique to Madison I, I don't 
think that it's unique to Madison. And I would say that Madison and Milwaukee have seen a similar trajectory um, in terms of the incredible growth, you know, over the last over the last 20 years. Absolutely. And I think even more so, you know, in the past in the past 10 or 15 years, um, I think that, you know, two the early 2000s were a real um, kind of a formative period for the modern restaurants that exist in Milwaukee, for instance. Um, and I think around that same time, you know, a, a lot of the chefs, um, even though Madison and Milwaukee, you know, I think the chefs have grown and a lot of them know one another. Um, and they, they kind of grew up, grew up at the, at the same time. I think by 2010, we were really, really um, on the way to the food scene that in Milwaukee, at least that we see existing now, um, which is, you know, by far, I think if you are not from Wisconsin and you come to Milwaukee or you come to Madison, I think that if you've not been before, you're very, very pleasantly surprised by both the 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 number of restaurants and the and the diversity of the cuisines that people that people show forward. And I think I think overall our two cities, because they're the largest, have had the most growth in restaurants. But I think, you know, when you look at the state um, overall, we have, you know, in places like Door County um, and in places like Viroqua, you know, you have Luke Zahm at the Driftless Cafe, um, who, you know, was nominated a semifinalist for a James Beard Award. Um, and that would have been unheard of 10, 15 years ago. Um, they weren't searching in little places like Viroqua. They weren't, you know, looking at, at Door County, you know, which is in the you know, the far north of the state. Um, and all of those things, I mean, I look at last year, we had 14 James Beard semifinalists for the state of Wisconsin in 2023. Um, and that's incredible. I mean, that's a that's an impressive number. Um, you know, we have top chef coming, you know, to the state. Um, um, right. They, they did filming this fall and we'll be seeing those episodes coming up in the spring. Um, I think I think all of those things are indicators that the state has the state has changed, um, the state has grown, um, but also there are just simply more eyes on what's actually happening here. Yeah, yeah, we are we are very lucky, and again, also for having all of these um, local farmers who provide such good and interesting crops, um, which is one of the things that. Um, that I noticed in the book is that um, some of the recipes are, um, are very interesting in the sense of um, what, what they have in them. I'm looking for my notes here, but um, you have like one after the other, um, a recipe with fava beans and another one with... Um, really interesting lentils I can I can't I can't find my the right note <laughs> here but um, um, like fava beans so I I garden and um, I cook and I'm from the Middle East and so I use fava beans to make fool if you're familiar with that yes. it's um, uh, yes. it's delicious but it actually hasn't ever occurred to me I must admit to make something else with it and so um, talk if you will about the 
um, interesting varieties. I mean, beans used to be beans, right? Those green beans. Right. And, but there's so many kinds of beans. And um, if you think about fava beans, I now I'm thinking about, oh, there's all these other things I can make with them. Um, yeah. so, so talk about that. So, so well, well, what's interesting, and, and you hit on this before, um, with the with the changes to farming that have happened, you know, and a lot of people have have seen, you know, we've seen kind of a loss of farms over the years. You know, there are less family farms that are passing the tradition of farming, you know, on to their their sons and daughters. Um, but I, th- but I think along the way, we've also seen changes, you know, these larger farms, um, the corporate farms, as you said, you know, that we're using so much monocropping, um, you know, and growing kind of the same things um, have really been exchanged by a, a new generation of farmers that are very, very interested in biodiversity. Um, they're very interested in growing, you know, bringing things back. And I think heirloom, vegetables, for instance, are one of those um, those cases where heirloom vegetables, most of them were retired from common use because we moved to an agricultural model where we wanted consistent crops. We wanted plants that produced a lot. You know, we wanted plants that produced in volume. We wanted plants that were easy to care for. And so they bred, you know, they bred our beans so that they would stand up straight and they wouldn't need to be held up by poles or tents or um, other other means. And that they would produce enough, you know, so that they could be picked in volume and shipped across the country. Um, well, if you're growing locally and you're not as concerned, you know, you're willing to put in the manpower to care for these, um, these vegetables, which sometimes need a little bit more, a little bit more help. So they produce well, um, you can grow a vastly more diverse, (laughs) diverse collection of things, um, on your farms. And I think that's, that's become an interest, um, for these farmers because, um, you know, and I see some of this has to, if we go back and at least, and I can speak at least for Wisconsin, that around in 1999 and 2000, um, and in the, in the years preceding that, people, the general public were getting way more interested in food. Um, and part of that was that there started to be reports about things like um, the pesticides that were being used in apples and the dangers of those for children. And there was an apple scare, maybe it was in the mid eighties um, where they were looking at the, the, the chemicals um, that were being sprayed on apple trees and their impacts potentially on children. Um, and suddenly parents became like, oh, we need to pay attention. Where's our food coming from? What is being sprayed on it? You know, how is this impacting um, our health, our children's health? You know, are there things that we can prevent from happening um, that are detrimental to, you know, longe- our longevity and health? And that's when, you know, in 2000 was when the USDA passed the organic standards um, for the U.S. And, um, and that changed that changed farming in terms of it made farmers interested in oh can can we do this you know without synthetic 
chemicals, synthetic add-ins. You know, how can we look to the earth um, and process um, to really maintain the ecology of our of our soil? Um, at that same time, we also saw the the dawn of things like the Food Network. And what's interesting about that, even though it seems entirely unrelated, is that people's interest in food became not just, oh, let's let's have healthy, you know, pesticide-free food, but look at all this food. You know, suddenly we're being exposed to chefs um, from various countries on television who are introducing us to new ingredients, um, to global flavors, to spices, you know, I mean, things like um, harissa, which is, you know, has been around <laughs> for centuries in, in places like North Africa and um, you know, no one, no one here, you know, had even heard of that or it did, you know, it wasn't a trending spice. Now you'll see it all over in restaurants. Um, so I think there's, I think there have been a couple of things on the consumer side that have inspired farmers to diversify their crops. Um, and, and to really, to grow some very different things, to grow things that might look a little different, you know, like an heirloom tomato that's green and it might be a little more cracked, you know, than your, than your average perfect red tomato. But the flavor profile that it has is really interesting. And I think that farmers have been driven both by their farmer's market clientele, which is increasingly more interested in something different that they can't get at the grocery store. And then behind that, you know, these chefs who will eat up, you know, any new thing that they can possibly showcase, you know, on their menu, um, because they're always looking for ways of presenting new flavors in new ways. Does that answer your question? Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but well, and I have many more questions and, and we'll you know, look at it in, in other ways. But um, again, Jade uh, saved the day. And, and the mm -hmm. other um, variety that I was thinking about is the beluga lentils, which, again, I I have not heard about that. And um, can, can you speak very briefly about these recipes? Um, do you remember the various recipes in your book? There's a lot of them. Yeah, there are quite a few, um, and and specifically. So, um, well, I know I know chefs. Beluga lentils are are one of those lentils where they're not they're not maybe as commonly found as as a brown lentil or a you know um, others that you might see in the store, and they've been valued. I know in in French cooking you know, for a very long time. It used to be one of those things that I think you would only find in a restaurant. Um, and I'm trying to remember the recipe. Was this um, maybe the braise recipe? Let um, me see. I actually have the page number. So, okay. So the first one that I mentioned is the fava bean risotto, oh, risotto. by Chef Zachary Baker at Calucenzo uh, mm -hmm. with fava beans from Rare Earth Farms. And the second one is uh, cauliflower curry with beluga lentils and carrot puree. That sounds so intriguing. Oh, yes. By Chef Nathan Bychinski, Red Eye Brewing Company. Red Eye Brewing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with vegetables from Red Door Family Farm. It, it, it's it's mm -hmm. a complicated <laughs> recipe. <laughs> 
This and some, and some, some of them, them are. are. Some of them are in the book, and and I, um, I tried not to limit chefs in terms of what they what they gave me. You know, some some people might say, oh, but you know, let's let's curate a cookbook that is you know that's all simple things that people you know eat on an ordinary basis, and I I felt kind of strongly that I wanted chefs to be able to choose recipes that they really thought were were worthy of sharing and to maybe encourage home cooks to stretch a little bit you know some of these recipes um what we did do was make sure that all the techniques are are well explained you know so a recipe might might take a little bit of time but it could you know it could be a project you take a day on the weekend um and go through and, you know, and build the flavors for this, for this beautiful dish that you might only otherwise be able to eat in a restaurant. Um, and part of my reasoning for that is that I personally, as a, as a cookbook fan, um, I'm kind of, I'm one of those people who won, I will read a cookbook from cover to cover, mm-hmm. um, just like a regular book. Um, and so, so I, and I do like cookbooks that have a little bit to chew on, you know, where there's a little bit of, where there's stories or, um, additional information that I can process along the way. Um, and this is definitely that cookbook, but I, but I also like cookbooks where there are things that intrigue me that make me want to go through a little bit of extra effort because I feel like that's how we learn and grow as cooks. So, um, so some recipes like this and because ingredients are so much more accessible to us, I can see a recipe with like beluga lentils and I could probably go on Google and say, where do I find these? You know, and I, right. in, in all likelihood, could probably find them locally, but if I can't, I can always order them. So, so ingredients are no longer, um, you know, it, a, a barricade, right? Yeah. For, for a cookbook. Um, and that's that's really wonderful because you can, I mean, this book has has recipes from a number of folks, and some of which are from you know. There's a recipe, a Nepalese recipe, um, yeah, and a, and an Indian recipe, and a recipe for you know chicken korma, which is maybe not the most um, uncommon Indian dish, but something that maybe you know you may have had trouble finding spices for 20 years ago. Yeah, um, and you no longer do. So right, right, and the Nepalese is the Kuhura Choila, right, mm-hmm. by Choyla. Chef yes. Barha Limbu Daily at the Chill, which mm-hmm. is C H E E L, um, and that again, uh, oh, it looks so good, and um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I generally. I, I generally um, uh, my philosophy is simple and delicious, right? I don't want to spend hours and hours in the kitchen making mm-hmm. one recipe. But you know, even if I don't end up making the more complicated recipes, it gives me some um, additional um, insight and, and respect for the chefs who actually make these things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For 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 many people, you know, I mean, yeah. these recipes are all pared down to, you know, generally four to six people. And when you think about it, there's all these, you know, all these ingredients and processes. Um, and this is why we and this is why we pay, you know, for restaurants yes. and restaurant experiences is is for things that we maybe don't want to to spend the time or tackle at home. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I wanted to tell you a quick story about um, the change, I suppose, to, to where organic gardening, organic farming, uh, organic eating is um, now... Um, quite common. Um, a lot of people, I suppose, can't afford it or don't yet understand um, the, the worth of it. But here's a story for me. So like I said, um, I arrived here in 1984 and some years later, I'm not sure when exactly, um, Julia Child was on Wisconsin Public Radio. And I had just bought an organic turkey to uh, for Thanksgiving. <laughs> I was still doing that mm-hmm. then. And I called and um, I said, so I bought an organic turkey and I wonder if you can. And I was going to ask if she can give me some unique, you know, idea so that it's not just another one of these dry, boring turkeys. But before I could finish my sentence, she chimed in and she's like, oh, organic, that is so stupid. You don't need organic. (laughs) She shouted at me for quite a while and she never answered my question because for some reason she was anti-organic. And I kind of have a hard time imagining any... Um, any cook, any chef, any um, cookbook author uh, repeating something like that nowadays. What do you think? Yeah, well, that, that's really, that is really interesting. Um, and I don't know if that stems from just like different agricultural practices that were, you know, she spent so much time in Europe um, and in France um, where I guess they don't even call it organic. They just grow things, you know, with a with a different with a different eye, and have been for a long time. Um, but I but I do think that you know, folks are looking folks are looking, especially chefs are looking for things that are the best, you know, that have the best flavor, that are the freshest, um, and and a lot of that comes with you know with good growing practices. Um, and I think now, like looking across the farms in the book, there's certainly like, you know, because we have the organic certified farms and then we have the farms that use practices that are kind of inspired by that, but not necessarily the certification. Um, and I think by and large, as a as a country, it's it's sort of interesting because I think we're moving in the direction of, like I said, just really this awareness of the need to to maintain the health of the soil and the microbes um, and to use practices that do that. And it's almost as if, you know, being organic, be orga- being organic used to be the, the staple in the tower for that. And now that's, it's almost best practice kind of like sourcing locally is, is best practice. And we don't think about it so much anymore, you know, as, right. as someone, you know, someone may have years and years ago, um, and I and I know that there, you know, there were varying, differing opinions about, you know, how much organic mattered because it was just something that was regulated by the government, and it was something that only wealthy people could, you know, could access because it was more expensive, or there was a perception there. Um, and I think now, you know, as people support local, you know, and they and they get to know their farmers, there are so many farmers who are, who are chemical free, you know. 
so to speak, um, and who really are paying are paying attention to all of these things. Because if you if you want to avoid destroying the land um, and make it better for the next generation, you just simply can't do all those things. Yeah, and I realize I haven't reintroduced you. My guest today is Laurie Frederick. We are talking about her latest book, Wisconsin Field to Fork, Farm Fresh Recipes from the Dairy State. And unfortunately, you cannot call us today because this is a pre-recorded show. I hope you're enjoying it anyway. I certainly am. Um, explain, Laurie, the notion of terroir. And um, what some of your farmers talk about, or maybe it's you who's talking about Wisconsin terroir, and uh, you actually give the example of upland cheese. What is terroir? Yes. So, well, when we talk about terroir, we're usually talking about, you know, it's it's most commonly used with wine, you know. Um, and it's it's the notion that there's this unique combination of, you know, the air, the earth, the water, the ecology um, that gives a unique flavor to a specific ingredient or a specific um, food. Um, and, you know, in the case of wine, it's the grapes. Um, and the comparison, you know, a wine in Sicily, you know, will have a, is a product of a volcanic soil. So you'll get all of this minerality um, and different flavors from it that way. Um, in the case of uplands, and you will hear dairy farmers talk about terroir here, um, here and there, you know, um, and it's usually in the case of as is uplands. And, and I should clarify, so uplands cheese is in the book as a farm um, because they're one of, I would say, I don't, I don't think there's, um, there's very many of them, but they're a farmstead um, creamery which means that their farm is on premise, they raise their own animals, the milk from that, those animals is what goes into making their cheese. So everything is all done, you know, is all made, you know, in, in this one environment. So it's a farm, it's a farm that makes cheese. Um, and one of the things that they prize, they only make two cheeses and both of their cheeses are dependent upon the flavor from the milk. And the flavor of that milk is developed from cows that graze. Um, and they use pasture grazed, you know, grass fed milk and cows. Um, and if you look at, so they're in Dodgeville, Wisconsin, which is in the Driftless region. And this is a, a place in Wisconsin that wasn't touched by the glaciers. So the, the population of their soil, you know, they have limestone bedrock beneath and then they have this well-drained well -drained soil that um, is perfect for growing things. So you have just a diverse, when you talk about a field that your cows would graze on, um, there are multitudes of grasses, um, wildflowers, um, legumes and different things that grow in those fields. Um, and as you rotate their grazing, you know, they're eating all of these different things. And what that does is creates um, a very, very specific flavor for the milk. You know, it's complex, it's sweet. Sometimes you'll get, you know, you'll get flavors from, um, from the herbs or a grassiness from the grass. Um, and that all 
goes into the cheese, you know, and combined with like the microflora um, that that develops on the cheese and the rind, you get these really complex flavors that come together. And that cheese <laughs> can't be made to taste the same anywhere else because that milk holds the flavor of the land and the, you know, and the climate. Yeah, and um, we get uh, both of these cheeses at the Coop um, for a limited time. And um, one wonders how how do farms thrive doing something so seasonal and um, limited? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think if you talk to the cheesemaker, Andy Hatch, um, he will tell you it's partially passion. Um, but he will also credit, I mean, so they make two cheeses at Uplands. One is the Pleasant Ridge Reserve, which is the aged Alpine style cheese. Um, that's, that one is made um, only in the summer. And that's why the, why the cows are grazing on that fresh green turf. And then they make Rush Creek Reserve. Um, and that's a soft, a soft cheese um, that is made from milk as the as the cows are moving into the winter into the winter months and they're starting to eat more hay and silage so that, that, that there's two different very different profiles there but pleasant ridge reserve um that alpine style cheese is is america's most award-winning cheese and i think i think that's helpful <laughs> in the sense that um you know that that cheese that cheese has had a lot of attention. There's there's great demand for it, um, but cheesemakers in Wisconsin, in general, you know, cheesemaking is is a profession that is more more sustaining, you know, than being a dairy farmer alone right now, because um, the prices of milk fluctuate so much, um, and it's it can be pretty hard to make a living as a dairy farmer. Um, but when you put in the time, you know, to make this artisan cheese, um, you know, it can be, you know, a really, a, sat a satisfying thing. And um, they've, and they've made it work for them. Um, I know that they are also very particular, however, about that milk. And so if they taste the milk and they're like, oh, this is just not for one reason or another, maybe it didn't rain enough this year or, um, or something, they will they will sell the milk if it's, you know, it, it's perfectly good milk, but not with the flavor profile they need for the cheese. And they will sell that milk instead uh -huh. and, you know, and forgo that season because they're so particular um, about what, what they do. Um, they also make money here and there. I know they've, they've raised pigs on occasion that they've, you know, finished with whey from the, from the cows, the milk of the cows. Um, and um, I think that they're just very creative. But um, but I'm um, I am also surprised and amazed um, by how some of these farmers, you know, make a living and and the reason, you know, what they do and the joy that they get, you know, from doing this this thing. That's really for others. Yeah, um, I'm um, I'm thinking I have um, two 
kids who are not kids anymore. And um, when I go visit them, there's always um, some specific demands to <laughs> bring Wisconsin cheese. My son uh, wants hooks cheddar, and of course, the older, the better. Um, the 20-year um, hooks cheddar has become, I think, globally famous, but they don't yeah. have that out often. And my daughter um, wants Car Valley Baba Blues, uh, Blue Cheese. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, yeah, it's, it's an example of, um, you know, they're not Wisconsinites anymore, but they sure want the Wisconsin cheese, and we're famous for that. We have so little time uh, left, and ooh, I could talk to you another hour for sure, but... Um, I guess I'll ask you about um, people who, um, and there's quite a few of them in the book, who have had careers, who um, studied something and, you know, worked in that something and presumably made good money. And then suddenly they are like, nah, what I want to do is farm. And I want to take the opportunity to... Um, recommend this movie that I just watched a couple of days ago. It's a British film called Green Fingers and it's it's based on mm. on real um, real events. Um, apparently in Britain they have a much better um, prison system than we have here and there's this one prison where uh, it's open prison. And uh, people are given opportunities to do something that they're into and, you know, therefore, first of all, find what their passions are and, and secondly, you know, become people who can come out and, and have um, an occupation. And in this case, it's this guy who I won't tell what he did because he doesn't tell it until much later in the film, but... Um, he realizes that he's a gardener. And um, and so several other very tough prisoners join him and they create these amazing gardens and that's all I'll tell for now. But the thing is, at one point, there's this really close um, shot of him and he says, he looks right in the camera and he says, I'm a gardener. And I get shivers up my spine as I tell you that because I am a gardener. You know, it's impossible for me to imagine myself without gardening, without growing my own food and such. So um, so about these people who had careers and then decided to become farmers. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and and you're right. I mean, there are so many. I mean, there's such a large cross-section of types of farms in the book. Um, in terms of, you know, what they, what they grow, what they produce, you know, because there's everything from, you know, obviously a cheesemaker to a trout farm to, um, to vegetable farms and, and livestock farms and everything in between. And, but, but the diversity of the folks who run the farms is equally impressive. Um, and there are, you know, there, there are teachers, you know, who spent the summer working on a farm and realized that, they felt relaxed and fulfilled, you know, by that work during the summer in a way that um, maybe their teaching careers didn't allow. Um, and they came and decided that that was 
what you know they were going to try it out um there's you know there are there are a few stories of, of folks who've taken over you know their their parents farms but nobody is doing this out of obligation anymore um you know it used to be that if your family owned a farm you were destined to run that farm you know and and you did it because it was a familial you know it was your job it was your job to carry on the family the family business and now we're just we're seeing you know men and women who if they are carrying on those farms you know setgraph farm in the book has been around for you know like 126 years i believe and this new generation of kids who are running the farm now you know kind of under under their parents ownership um they really they came to it maybe because they wanted to make a little bit of extra money but have stayed with it because they they found a passion for you know in, in nicole sentcraft's case like connecting with both customers and chefs you know and really doing that um and being creative and thinking about what the farm should grow you know so um and i and i don't you know i could i could tell so many stories about specific folks but i think i think that's one of the fascinating things that people will find in the book yes. is every one of these farmers is passionate um i i think farming requires you to be passionate um i've often I've often thought of farmers and chefs uh, as as existing kind of on a similar plane because they do jobs that are there's hard work. Um, there's they're not going to make zillions of dollars. You know, there's not a lot of payoff there, um, except at the other end, you're feeding someone and, you know, making them happy. Um, so you need to go into it. You need to love what you do. You need to love that enough that you will do that hard work every day, um, you know, regardless of, you know, the, you know, regardless of the level of income that you that you're bringing in. So, so I think that, as, you know, these folks who are leaving careers that aren't fulfilling for them are probably the best farmers because they're coming to a realization that they have a passion for the land, you know, itself, or they have a passion for being outdoors, um, or for physical work, you know, some people are just great farmers, because they really enjoy the physicality of that work, um, or the science, you know, of that work. And they wake up, one of my goals in interviewing the farmers was to capture the answer to one question. And that was, what makes you get up and do this job every single day? And I think in every story, the farmer answers that somewhere. Um, and that was inspiring to me because we all need a reason to get up and do our jobs every day. And most of these farmers have an amazing um, passion and, and many reasons to get up. <laughs> and do what they do yeah well we are just about out of time we have um one minute left uh so much more to talk about but um again the book is wisconsin field to fork farm fresh recipes from the dairy state it has a lot of beautiful photos and a lot of really interesting recipes some um, easy but still surprising, like um, for me, the 
beet pate never occurred to me to create a pate out of beet and i have beets still in my fridge from you know this um this summer and sd it's so delicious and easy to make yeah i'm gonna <laughs> try it i'm gonna try it so um thank you so much laurie frederick who wrote the book um appreciate it we're out of time <laughs> well thank you so much for having me Esty. thank you laurie frederick and thanks to jade and to summer i'm Esty dinur bye-bye another mental level low power frequency radio modulation the big sound from underground another pirate station we bring the truth to places truth is never heard before we bring the sound communication of our